0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Kriya Yoga podcast. We've got a wonderful guest today. We're going to be looking at the Yoga Sutras. Uh, we have Zoe May with us, who is the director of the American Sanskrit Institute. And it was through the American Sanskrit Institute that I first um, began uh, a more in-depth, I think, serious study of the Yoga Sutras because once you start to see how the language works, uh, you understand things a little bit differently. Um, but anyway, welcome, Zoe. It's wonderful to have you today.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad to have you here because um, while I have chatted with uh, uh, Vyas Houston once or twice, who was he was the director before you, correct?
1: Yes, he's the founder.
0: Yeah. The founder. Um, I never really got a chance to, to pick his brain. And the thing that um, always fascinated me about the Yoga Sutras, uh, aside from the interesting information in there, was how, how people got what they got from the sutras, meaning I, I, would, I would have texts in front of me about this translation, that translation, this translation. And then I got the Yoga Sutras workbook um, from the American Sanskrit Institute and i would be reading through it and i would read these these direct i guess direct translations of the sutras and i wondered to myself how on earth how on earth did these translators get what they wrote from what's in this book
1: <laughs> that's wow that's such a great thought that's
0: well so so let's let's start with that i mean i know we have some interesting uh, uh themes that we want to cover today but do you have any insights into that when when you see someone writing translations or commentaries, do you ever do the same thing and think to yourself, "Where did that come from"?
1: Yeah, in fact, my experience, initial experience was with the Yoga Sutras was that the commentaries um, were so varied and so confusing that I became very discouraged mm. until I met uh, Vyas mm-hmm. and started studying with him. Um, what I think. I've give, actually given this a lot of thought. And what I think is that you're familiar with the term vrittis or yeah. So um, the yoga sutras speak to uh, the individual at where they are, at the level that they are. So they, there are many layers um, of understanding that are within the sutras or offered through the sutras. And um, so whatever wherever somebody is, What they're experiencing, they're having an experience, and then their commentary derives from that experience. Mm. And so it's not that it's wrong um, or that these varied one is right and one is wrong. It's that it's really rooted in that author's experience, and so that translator um, may speak to you, and then you would stick with that person Uh. uh, or that that copy that book. Mm -hmm. So, um, but what I've found is for me personally, that there's a depth that occurs. There's a deepening of understanding that occurs. So you go through these layers as you experience them, these layers of understanding. And it's really more about um, direct experience than intellectual study. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I've learned from Vyas. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's, yeah. So the commentaries are really the Vritti of the translator. Um, Right.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, because I can remember even reading a a passage from the sutras or studying the sutras, uh, and then say a few years later, going back and and reading it again and contemplating it again, and having a whole other uh, idea about what it was indicating what it meant. Um, And even even recently, you know, I've, I've had this this book this workbook for at least twenty years now I think and uh,
1: wow okay
0: yeah I've had it for a while that's why it's fallen apart and, <laughs> uh, and and a few other commentaries and as I was going through and doing a discussion on the yamas and niyamas I I saw something in the book which somehow every time I read it I missed and that was when it was discussing the yamas and, and niyamas uh, it was talking about how this is. The great vow or Mahavatra is that?
1: Mahavratam. Yeah. yeah my, yes.
0: And um, and you know, that was I've been looking at this for decades and I saw it and I thought, oh my goodness, how on earth have I missed that every single time? <laughs>
1: Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yep.
0: Yeah. And um, my other thought was uh when it comes to the translations, you know, one of the things I kept noticing was when I would look at like the direct. As as uh Vyas would 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 uh write out here, um, you know, I would read something like uh Vyasa practices vigilance practices vigilance in remaining there. That would be that would be the phrase. And then I'd go read someone else's commentary and like that one sentence somehow turned into a whole paragraph of, of translation. Right. So is that just from maybe understanding different nuances of the the Sanskrit words or, or terminology, or is it just more of what you were talking about previously?
1: It, it I think it is more of what I was talking about previously. One of the things about um, Vyas is that he is uh, an amazing translator. He's a perfectionist in him. He, he has this deep understanding of the grammar. Uh, he's an, he's, you know, intellectually, just so incredibly sharp. And so plus he has um, this connection to the sutras through his own meditation practice. So um, when he writes them like this, what it does is it gives the, um, the student or the person that's studying his text the opportunity to have their own experience with it with the actual literal translation right and so that's why i mean he just is translates it that way and he's the same with the bhagavad-gita as well like the translations are just so pristine and to watch him translate is just it's crazy it's insane but yeah <laughs> so he doesn't do any flourishes you know i had um a teacher a meditation teacher who's a great sanskrit scholar who would have so many, he would turn it into a poem, you know, one line, he would turn into a whole poem, which was beautiful, but it was really all his vritti, his experience of it. So we were getting to experience his experience.
0: Right. Right. But
1: not our own experience. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I do think that is why I, you know, of all of my, of all of my, translations and commentaries, I always go back to this American Sanskrit Yoga Sutra workbook. <laughs> Isn't
1: that amazing? That's wonderful to hear,
0: actually. Yeah, because it, it just it's, it just goes straight to it. And I also, I remember getting the, um, on, on cassette tape, the, um, he, he would uh, recite the, the Yoga Sutras. So I had it on cassette, I, w- I would stick it in the car. And recently I got the, the MP3 files for it, because I also think it's useful to, to hear how it's supposed to be pronounced and to chant along with it. Um, which leads me to another question. You mentioned how uh, uh, Vyas uh, meditated on the sutras and, and studied them. So from your perspective, how would you or how do you recommend or, or, or in, inspire individuals to, to learn this, to contemplate the sutras, to meditate on the sutras? Is there any particular way that you find uh, helps them have their own direct experience of it?
1: This is the million-dollar question. This is, <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is basically Vyas. Um, he had memorized all of the sutras, and um, through that experience, uh, a, a mandala actually came to him. So he began to experience them in this four-five dimensional framework, where he was um, experiencing the subtle quality of them, yeah. and. The reality is, is the yoga sutras are not a linear text. It is a linear, it's not linear, but it does have little segments of linearity. And so what seemed to happen for him um, was that they began to, in his meditation, they began to assemble themselves within his consciousness. Um, But the reason he started doing, he started doing the sanyama meditation, which is the meditation described in the third chapter um daharana dhyana and samadhi the three together is one um and he he'd been very ill and the one of the later sanyamas which is um i think it's 44 344 the bhuta jaya is the one that he uh, did and it, it's for health
0: is it, that the one where you focus on the navel
1: no but that's a good one okay um, <laughs> I haven't actually done that one. I've only really done the ones that Vyas taught me. So it's um, it's the mastery of the elements right. as they exist in the body. Mm. And so, and then the promise, he gives us the, the Sanyama, Patanjali, and then he gives us the result, which, you know, sometimes they're considered the Siddhis. The result would be um from emergence of such powers is becoming minute, the perfection of the body, non-injury through heat, cold sickness by its constituents. Mm. So that's the first one. And, oh, I have a lot written here. for this. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, wow, you know, because there's so much room to write in this workbook. Yeah. Um, form, beauty, strength, and diamond compactness is the perfection of the body. So he started doing um, the Jaya Sanyama, for his own health. And it did heal him. Mm -hmm. And he did it for many, he's been doing it for over 50 years now, I think. Um, But he, um, what seemed to happen is that the, the sutras began to assemble themselves and he began to understand them in a different way and how they work together. And he moved on from this Sanyama 344 to the Sanyama um, 47 which is mastery of the senses these are the two main sanyamas that aren't really concerned with powers as much as they're concerned about self-knowledge right um, and dismantling ego indriyajaya dismantles the ego a uh, bhuta jaya moves brings your chitta into the body into all the elements of the body so and then moving from there into the Indriyajaya, where you begin to dismantle the ego in a movement towards Ishwara Pranidhana. Yes. So this is this, I believe, was revealed to him by the Sutras themselves. You know, yes. you know, he yes. started with the Bhutta Jaya for a very simple reason, and it became so. And it's been an amazing experience for me. I've been practicing the Sanyama practice for years now. And um, they, this is how the sutras reveal themselves to you through experience. Now there's the other way is also through translation. You can, if you engage the Sanskrit, it's just as powerful. um, It's kind of powerful.
0: You've touched upon (laughs) so much there. Um, First, when you were talking about the, the non-linearness of the sutras, um, I, I, I have a, I had attempted writing a commentary on the sutras, And what I personally, what I found useful about that was number one, contemplating the information. But then what I appreciated was once I got to the end, at the end of chapter four, it was like it, it, it looped back on itself. It, it was almost like now we're back at the, now we're back at the beginning where it's now talking about abiding as the self again. It was a very, I remember that moment when, when I completed those first final sutras and commentary and thinking, wow, this is just one big loop that just keeps spiraling in on itself. So I, I appreciate the non nonlinearness about it. And you talking uh, about chapter three and as I mentioned in an email, when I would refer to the sutras because um, I'm a teacher in the Kriya Yoga tradition and Yogananda was told by Sri Yukteswar uh, to teach Kriya Yoga from the sutras. So, of course, we wow. we focus on that. And uh, Vyas, uh, from what I recall, he also had taught quite a uh, few times at Center for Spiritual Awareness with Mr. Davis. Um, or for, for the retreats there, um, but I would always veer away from chapter three when it came to talking about the sutras, because in, in my mind, people got caught up in, as you described, the powers of, of what's there. And, and what you're telling me, I've never really, it, it's never been shared the way you're sharing it, that these are, what's coming to me is that these are tools that can be used to assist us on our awakening path. And you you mentioned that these particular sutras, that they focus on that. And the one I always told people to focus on if they wanted to focus on any of them was um, contemplating uh, friendship to develop uh, moral and spiritual strength. I said, if you're going to do any of them, just focus on that one.
1: no that's really good that's
0: beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I'd like to ask you could you describe for those of uh, listeners who are who are really new to a, a lot of this what what is this practice that you're talking about Try, when we get into chapter three what exactly is being described there as a practice
1: okay so chapter three basically what's being described I'm, I am gonna I'll, I can really so the first um, the first sutra is Desha Bhandas Chittasya Dharana. So Dharana is the focusing of chitta within a specific location. So you could almost say like Dharana is just choosing a point of where you're going to send your chitta. In the case of the Sanyama that we do, the, the Bhutajaya, the location is going to be one of the uh, great elements in the body. So we would start with the element water or earth, something like that as it exists in the body. So you're just choosing that point. Then the second sutra, the single directionality, um, which is tatra pratyayayika tanata dhyanam. So dhyanam meditation is really the movement of consciousness to that point. So there's consciousness is actually moving pratyaya. Um it, it, uh, that word implies movement or states that there's a movement. So you're moving your chitta or your consciousness into the water element of the body. Well, Let's say that. Okay. And then once um, we have samadhi tad svarupa shunyam eva that chitta specifically appearing as the object alone. As without a form. So, chitta almost being like your consciousness, but a mirror that it comes in and it fully reflects the element as it exists in your body to the exclusion of everything else. Right. So, the three of these things, the harana, choosing the point, dhyana, sending chitta there, and samadhi, absorbing chitta fully, the three of these together as one is sanyama. Okay. So, that's what we're doing.
0: And um, go ahead.
1: No. And so with the elements, you would do it through the elements, with the elements through the body. There are other sutras that, that Vyas uses um, or that we use now, all of us that are doing the meditation to um, aid that process. So there are sutras that aid that process.
0: Okay. And with this idea here, um, you're directing, so you're directing your your awareness or your attention. And um, I'm kind of focused on this word, pra- yeah, yeah, where it says the arising thought, which directs chitta to an object. Um, could we kind of consider that as though, all right, now you need to use your, your, your mental capacity to, as an entry point, begin thinking about what you know this to be.
1: Yes. So that would be the other sutras come in um, from there, from chapter one, um, Savitarka, Using language to move ah. chitta. And uh, then nirvitarka, once chitta is fully absorbed, nirvitarka, letting go of language.
0: Right, right. And
1: then the same thing with savichara into the subtle space, and then nirvichara, letting go of language in the subtle space.
0: Right. Okay, interesting, and you know, as I as I listen to you talk and I, I hear more of this as well, uh, in order to experience that cognitive absorption or that samadhi and, and and holding that alone, for example, if you're talking about contemplating the water element, or uh, that's just the word I'm using, but contemplating the water element, um, you have to you have to have a sense of being able to practice. Uh, and the yamas and niyamas non-attachment because otherwise you're going to be attached to all these other things and you can't sink your awareness into the thing you want to sink it into. What
1: seems to happen for people initially? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what seems to happen for people when they first start doing the meditation, it was for me as well, that when you engage the water element, first it's like all outside your body. Like you're imagining waterfalls and rivers and oceans or the rain, whatever, like all of these external things. But eventually... The more you bring chitta in, it becomes still gross because you're doing it the gross first, you know, the blood and the wetness of the eye, like so, but it really does. So there is a a non-attachment that has to occur with what your understanding is of water and your experience of water. Right. It happens kind of naturally though, but I have learned from teaching this meditation that. It wasn't just me that had that experience a lot of people have that experience it's really wise of you to recognize that 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 non-attachment is necessary right from the get-go
0: right well the thing that i've i've been trying to to share with people when it comes to the sutras you know when we look at the eight limbs that they're all they're all required you know for example let's take the idea of contentment i've been as you can tell i've been focused on yamas and niyamas a lot but if if you take the idea of contentment or santosha is that correct yeah yeah santosha Uh, if if you take that idea well when you sit to meditate of course you're going to meditate or be able to focus your awareness much better if you are already able to access a state of contentment because you're not troubled by all the other things so what i've been trying to do is, is is instill that when it comes to the eight limbs of yoga, you can't just say, I'm going to meditate every day for three hours. You have to incorporate all the aspects of it. So it locks together and creates that, that mm, pattern or that structure for the samadhi or the realization to occur.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's um, what I've realized is it, again, it's not linear. Mm -hmm. So with the um, yamas and the niyamas that, um, if you're working with those last three, um, the Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi, even if you haven't achieved what, what, uh, the, the last of the eight limbs, what, uh, what's going on, then with the other um, aspects of the Yamas and the Niyamas, mm-hmm. that um, they begin to become easier. So it's like this back and forth flow, like you're practicing them all simultaneously. Right. And they affect one another back and forth. It's really a beautiful process.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, re- it reminds me of, um, I remember reading Vasista's yoga on the, the, the four gatekeepers of liberation. And Vasista said, even if you can't practice all of them, if you practice just one, the rest will develop a- around that. that so.
1: I, yeah, mm-hmm. I, yes, I can totally see that.
0: Well, since, since we've already discussed how this is nonlinear, we're going to keep this podcast session a little nonlinear because I want to keep coming back to what you, we've been talking about because there's so much there to, to consider. But before I forget, I want to get two other questions out of the way, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Okay. So the one of the questions I, I had considered, um, <clears throat> you know, when looking at the sutras, um, there is uh, the Ishvar Panidad. <clears throat> and uh, so it's often translated from what I've seen as uh, like surrender to God. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sense was the the idea of Ishvara. While yes, that is a, a, could be a term for God, that that's not quite exactly it, clear. It's not like God like we think of it. It's like the Lord of the Universe or the Master of this this intelligence which is making things happen. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that term or, the, or that that idea within the sutras? Yes. It,
1: so let's go to actually Ishvara Prameya.
0: The beginning of two, I think, right.
1: Um, I think it's one twenty
0: something. By the way, this is great. Like, you know, I went to, I was raised Catholic, and uh, I had to go to Sunday school a lot, and I didn't like it. So having <laughs> having the yoga sutras in front of me, knowing you're doing it too, I feel like I'm in Sunday school that <laughs> I actually want to be in. <laughs>
1: funny is i used to be a sunday school teacher <laughs> so that's pretty funny <laughs>
0: well great and we're having a good time
1: <laughs> a miracle. um so it's 123 um, oh and i have an i have a new version let me grab my old version so i'm on the same definition as you i have like so many of these workbooks um, <laughs> i have my old one here um so even if we look at if we, so here's the thing if we look at Ishvara Pranidhana in terms of starting with 120 we don't, I don't, we don't have to um, chant them or anything but shraddha virya smriti samadhi pratnya porvaka itresham so in the case of others narodha which we are all familiar with I think is preceded by faith Energy, memory, samadhi, and primary insight. So, this is the beginning of like a movement towards Ishvara Pranidhana, this state of Narodha that is that is precipitated by these things, um, as opposed to a Narodha where you leave the body, like Prakritilaya, nam, like so. So, here, so this is the beginning. So, there's Ishwara Pranidhana is an inward movement. And then um, in the case of those, the next one, Tivra Samveganam asanaha. in the case of those whose frequency is intense, Narodha is near. So, frequency meaning vibration. Mm -hmm. We're talking about vibration here.
0: And so ah. yeah. see, you see what happens there. I, like what you just said makes perfect sense. However, <laughs> and many of the commentaries, and I think that's even what I wrote too. Frequency was, I was having the idea of frequency of practice, frequency of, anyway, keep going. This is great. Yeah,
1: so no, no. Cause they go together. Frequency of practice increases the, so this is, these are the layers. Yeah. These are the layers. Frequency of practice increases the frequency of vibration. So it's, they go together, hand in hand. Um, so, and then the next one, because of my, or so me say, because of the degree of mild, moderate, or extreme vibration frequency, there is a difference in nearness of narodha. So narodha sets the stage um, in a sense for, um, an understanding so of Ishvara and what's happening here in this, with this vibration, this vibrational frequency, if you think about Viveka Kyati, the continual discernment of the distinction between the seer and what is being seen, the field of consciousness, um, that's one way to go. And this vibration, this frequency becomes very intense when you're only, when you're, constantly seeing unobstructedly seeing um, without merging or identifying with your field or he says so ishvara pranidhana dva so va or or because of ishvara pranidhana the perfect aligning of ten- attention in ishvara the ultimate seer so basically ishvara is seen as the inner controller the right ultimate seer um, and your true, your true self. So it is at the point where you identify with that greater consciousness, where your individual consciousness merges with Ishvara. And so you, at Mm -hmm. that point you can achieve the same frequency simply by Ishvara Pranidhana. And that can be by, identifying with an aspect of God, you know, that you feel a devotional, it can be a devotional thing, or it can be through practice, through practices, um, where you just begin to see and own and see only.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. The the reason I was curious well, that, that again started so much stuff. Um, the reason I was curious about that was because um, some people kind of argue that there that it's a, an atheistic text that that there's no room for this idea of of, of God or divinity in there. And um, what I'm hearing you saying is you can uh, use the your ideas or concepts as far as you understand it now, or through certain practices, which reveal the state that that's also one way to approach this. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, this, this text goes perfectly aligns itself with, um, the Bhagavad Gita, Mm -hmm. which is a very spiritual text. And Mm -hmm. so, um, I think it can it, it speaks to where each individual actually is. Right,
0: right. And those are uh, from what I was taught from Mr. Davis, who's a student of Yogananda's, uh, that the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita were the prime texts to study. Yeah. Um, and the way I and personally saw it was um, I considered the Bhagavad Gita as a description of what exactly the spiritual path is going to be like what you're going to go through, what to expect, what to, what to pay attention to. And then I considered the, the yoga sutras as kind of the manual of how to do it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's also another text, which kind of goes, is overlooked. Um The, the Sankhya Karika. Have you heard of yes. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that is also um, kind of like, a philosophical esoteric text that underlies and almost on the other side of the right. yoga sutras you have the sankhya karika then you have the yoga sutras and then you have the bhagavad-gita and they kind of all three work together
0: okay well and, and that's is that the text if i recall correctly that basically has that uh, beginning that says uh suffering is inevitable is that yeah. the right one okay yeah. So, what, what just came yeah. up here was suffering is inevitable. But in the Yoga Sutra, somewhere in there it says the suffering which has not yet been experienced is to be avoided. Yes. So, how do you put that together?
1: <laughs> I always say avoided too. And Vyas always corrects me. <laughs>
0: oh, <be> <laughs> oh, oh, that is. Yes. I don't, I don't remember where that is, <laughs> but and I know.
1: I always, you know, and he would always say ended. Um, I, um, that ties so I much together. Chapter two. Let me see.
0: There it is. Is it uh, 210? It might be. Those subtle are to be ended.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. And the way, and, and see how he says, so te prati sukshma, those, the kleshas, the root causes of pain, are to be ended by inverse propagation. Inverse propagation is exactly what we're doing when we do sanyama.
0: Right. Okay, all right, great, so that's a good time. Let's go back now. <laughs> let's go back to to this work in chapter three. <clears throat> okay. so um, when you are let's say you're 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 describing this to someone who you know they've been practicing meditation, they have their spiritual path, they haven't really. Dug too deeply into the yoga sutras, um, how would you share or give insights how to begin a practice like some uh, like that for for like people. Uh, yes
1: um, so probably take a
0: take a class on the sutras <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I'm trying to think how I actually teach it is um, you know, I start with the first five sutras and just to get a basic understanding of um, what chitta is, or actually maybe the first 12 sutras. sutras, um, Yeah, so to get an idea of, um, so the first, first four give us the overview of what yoga actually is. The idea is that we're going to... So to have an understanding of that and then un- an understanding of the vrittis, which would be... And then an understanding of abhyasa and vairagya. So that would be the first 12. Okay. And then to... Um,
0: well, before you go too far, before you go too far, yeah. um, you said to understand the vrittis, abhyasa and vairagya. Vayar- correct?
1: Right, and chitta. what chitta
0: is for for those individuals, because a lot of people listen to the podcast, which aren't super steeped in Sanskrit. Can you tell us a little bit about those four things just to get a general idea if it's possible?
1: Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so what are they again? Vrittis? <laughs>
0: the vrittis, Abhyasa, right? Vayard-
1: yeah. Okay. So the, the Vrittis, the Chitta is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's In chapter 13 of the Bhagavad Gita, there's a great description of what uh, the field it's the, Chitta is the field of consciousness. And so the field includes everything, um, your body, your mind, all of the thoughts and experiences that you have, all of that is um, contained in Chitta. Then those thoughts and actions that you take in the world are rooted in Vritti, or um, so, vritti are thoughts or waves, they create waves in the field of consciousness. So, um, and then basically, abhyasa and vairagya. ragya, abhyasa is. Um, often it translates as practice mm-hmm. but it's continued it's a continued effort to stay on a point of focus whatever that is so for example you know you do your meditation practice every day that's a bhyasa with um you do this for a long period of time which is described in the yoga sutras and vairagya is non-attachment which goes hand in hand it's like they're the two wings of yoga so vairagya is Every time you get pulled off that point of focus, you let go of whatever it is that's pulling you off point and come back to point. So you wake up, I'm tired, I don't feel like meditating. So you have to use bhairagya to get yourself onto that cushion or onto your mat or whatever your practice is. Um, So that's just a simple description. So, abhyasa and bhairagya, which are described in sutra 112. And then it kind it does go on. 13, um, 14 and 15 all describe a Vyasa and in by If you want to check it out. Um, your if your viewers want to check it out, listeners.
0: Abhyasa practices vigilance and remaining there. Yes. So I love that.
1: <laughs> yes. And then um, it has a firm ground when attended to for a long time without interruption. I think too, and devotion to truth. I feel like that's so important right. that often gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. The devotion to truth card.
0: Yeah, I with the devotion to truth. Um, being a vedic astrologer and a lot of people have issues with with saturn um i remember reading the greatness of saturn by robert svoboda and there was a story at the end of that i don't think it was actually in the greatness of saturn it was you know, kind of a secondary story and it was a discussion on an individual who's getting ready to go through the Sadi Sati period where saturn crosses over the moon and uh, saturn came and told the person that and then all the virtues began to leave through his chest except for the last one to leave was Truth, and the the man reached up and grabbed Truth and said, "All the rest of them can go, but you have to stay." Wow. And then, and then, once Truth stayed, the rest of them said, "Well, we can't go anywhere without Truth." So all the other virtues came back to him. So when I think about the the the, the yamas niyamas again, right. the, Satya is the one I, I tend to <laughs> encourage people to focus on that one and the rest <laughs> because. <laughs> Because if you have devotion to truth, then that creates a current, which will keep you engaged in the process, which leads you to more truth. It almost seems like it's a, a, a feedback loop of some sort.
1: That really makes sense. That mm-hmm. really makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But why were you focusing on that? I, I always like to hear uh, when you, when you said and with devotion to truth that gets overlooked, what, what are your insights into that?
1: Well, my, It's very basic. Just the idea that, um, doing the practice is enough. Like there has to be more of an emotional uh, connection to what it is, why you're doing it. And the, the reason that we're doing it is, is as seekers of truth. So the devotion to truth.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. So what, what you're describing here is in a sense, you know, you're not doing this for any other reason other than you want to know the truth. That's kind of the, the point.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the point, yeah, that, that you're looking, not looking for, but um, it's almost desiring to experience truth right. directly, yeah. Okay. yeah. But it's the same thing that you're talking about, you know, pulling it in to your heart, and then everything else just falls into place.
0: And in vairagya, non-attachment, is the full knowledge of mastery, not clinging to objects already experienced or described by others. Um, that what's that is that number that 's number fifteen
1: number fifteen yeah
0: yeah so yeah, these are wonderful points and and again, what I love about the sutras is when you talked about being nonlinear, you know we have this description here, but then again, once you get through them all it 's like it all ties together and it all just kind of makes sense. <laughs>
1: Kind of does. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so we talked about um, uh, vritti, citta, abhyasa, varagya, and those are the four, the, yeah. the, the four main yes. ideas.
1: Yeah, and then the all of the vrittis are described. So uh, one, I think, one of the most important things to remember. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like um, to actually be able to. Um, utilize all these you might need a little bit more guidance than i'm giving but um, well this is just an
0: uh, introduction so hopefully
1: introduction okay don't know where to find you <laughs> so um yeah so um the i i feel like t- the two most important to me the, the of the vrittis rather than go through all of them mm. um are um well direct perception so we'll say three pramana one seven which is basically where this practice leads you is to a direct experience of the truth, um, of insights, and vikalpa uh, one nine. I feel is really important. Uh, vikalpa is ima- is really imagination, and imagination becomes really key in um, in doing this practice. Like if you're moving into the water element of the body, you're not literally experiencing it. Um, it's uh, you're using your imagination to get chitta in there to, to draw chitta in. Imagination is really important. Right. And then the the last one is um, that I feel is super important is smriti is remembering. Mm-hmm. If you can remember the experience, you can get back there very quickly. You don't mm-hmm. have to go through all the the steps that uh, Patanjali lays out necessarily. You can just get there if you can remember.
0: And that makes sense. Um, if, if I think about, say, a musician learning a, a piece of music, once they learn the piece of music, they don't have to go back through every step of learning that piece of music once they know it. Then it's just there. So if, if, in, our, if in our practice, we're able to imagine or experience, or if we have an experience of, say, maybe pure consciousness, uh, just by remembering it from the beginning the next time, Helps is, is that what you're?
1: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly, and um, consequently, you would be able to at any given point in time just walk around in that state because you're able to pull it up at any given moment. If you like, rem- even remembering to do it, remembering to pull it up, you know, All right. All right. so. I mean-
0: Again, I want to I want to keep on this theme. Um, but one other question that that came up, um, so we're we're diverging here a little bit. Uh, are you familiar, uh, or do you have any insights on when we think about the history of the Yoga Sutras? Um, is this a text that has been commonly stu- practiced, studied, understood? Say in in, in yogic communities over the centuries, or is this a text that has been around certainly, but now more recently is becoming more wide known, say in the last, you know, 50, 20 years or so?
1: Yeah. So my experience, especially studying, you know, having experienced the sutras without Vyas and then experience them with Vyas, mm-hmm. um, is that they, they are engaged people tend to engage the sutras. Um, I do believe more recently here in the United States, like in the last 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. um, but it's very intellectual. Mm-hmm. Even Sanskrit is engaged as an intellectual language and it's not, it's, it's a spiritual language, you know, it's it. And um, so it has to be chanted. It cries out to be chanted. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the way that the language is taught at university is very intellectual. And so a whole big three quarters of what the language is about is missed by the scholar. Mm-hmm. So you really want,
0: Did you say missed?
1: Yeah. Completely. Like <laughs> yeah. Just completely. Yeah.
0: Okay. It's, it's, I like that. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: yeah, And um, the, you really want to be a practitioner scholar. You don't want to be just a scholar. Um, and it's kind of hard with the sutras or with these yogic texts to be just a practitioner because, um, there are just not enough teachers, you know, mm-hmm. to, that are teaching at this level that we're talking about the Vyas or even, you know, you or I, where we're taking people deep into the text. Um, I think, um, that, um, you know, these, especially, you know, like chapter three, I want to talk about that just for a minute. Cause it's really, yeah. the, um, the Tanjali, you know, it's like thousands of years, like 2000 years ago, whatever codified what the ancient rishis were actually doing and how, like, so Jyotish, Ayurveda, all of these, um, things, all of these, uh, studies and practices were based on an inward movement on Sanyama. And they, the rishis would move inward to discover the truths of the universe. And so what Patanjali did was take this practice that all the rishis were doing and codify it with these sutras. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I make up my own little story that, you know, he, he eventually wrote it down because he noticed there was a decline right. and that he wanted it to be preserved and so that we could now rediscover it. Um, And as far as I know, there are not any yoga schools right now that are doing the Sanyama practice. Mm -hmm. And so Vyas really, you know, revivified it. Mm -hmm. Um, The closest is Yoga Nidra. Um, And that is not rooted in Sanyama in the same way because the the practice as Vyas has... um, kind of pulled it together is all about awareness and consciousness. So you're moving from the waking state to the deep sleep state, fully awake. Right. You're using the sutras to do that. So it's not yoga nidra.
0: It's- well, y- y- you bring up the idea of yoga nidra. And uh, my experience, when I've seen people describe that, they're just doing full body relaxation. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's a really watered down, I mean, yeah. you know, version of of what's laid out in the sutras. It is from the sutras, I, think.
0: I but you, think. Yeah, I mean, they talk about, it's described in there. And I remember recently reading it again, and I'll have to flip through and find it here. But the description was, it's, uh, what was it? It was, in a way, it seemed to say that when when you move towards a state of non-wakefulness, which can be translated, or people think it means going to sleep, like snoring. But it, when I read it again recently, it seemed like it's 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 avoiding things that lead you to non wakefulness, as in presence.
1: Right.
0: Do, do you know what I mean? Yes.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so, so I've been. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been trying to figure out how when I see all these things pop up and people are saying, "Can you can you teach me yoga nidra?" and I'm thinking. I know what you want. You want this Shavasana where you're laying down and doing a full body relaxation, but how would, how would you describe, how would you, or could you describe that practice to someone to get more of what the sutras were, were, were indicating? What would you say about that?
1: Um, do you mean closer to Sanyama?
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, you,
1: I, you need to sit up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You need to sit up and. You really, so with the Upanishads, all of these different texts describe this being fully awake in the deep sleep state. And the, before you can do it awake, walking around or whatever, you really need to be able to do it in this meditative way. Exactly. And Sanyama takes you there. And I, I just can't even, I get chills when I think about it. Um, so, so that you would be sitting up. And you would go using language, bringing chitta in to, to the first to the gross, experiencing the water element in the body, then the subtle, which would be like moving into the dream state, and then finally, this this is all described in the sutra three forty four, unvaya, which would be um, the deep sleep state, and this is where all the transformation is taking place in unvaya, yeah. and um, then finally. For the Bhutta Jaya, you take a step back and acknowledge that this immersive experience that you've just had in your own being is not who you are. You're the seer. You just yeah, so it's like it's like my it's really a mind-blowing practice, and you're awake for the whole thing. So that when you're done, when you finish meditating, you you, fo- you remember, you may not be able to describe the experience, right. but you remember the experience. Eventually, you can describe it, I think.
0: You you described, you know, there aren't enough teachers necessarily who are able to, to, to share this. But my question is, even for people who spend time really studying this stuff, this is uh, subtle, subtle work. So... Is there a when you're sharing this information um or or the practice or or encouraging people to have their own experience? Um how do you how do you start when you know you're interacting with individuals that the, the subtle is, is really way out getting them to the subtle aspect of things, it's going to take a little while. Mm-hmm. But you know that you can start getting access to it from more gross levels or um just easier to to comprehend levels. How do you approach that process to begin guiding people down to those more subtle experiences that can't be talked about or can't be described?
1: I I feel like um, helping people to vibrate at a different frequency is the first step. So, and rather like just bypassing the mind altogether. And um, so for me, chanting having beginners and, they you know it's really can be challenging having them chant the an entire chapter mm-hmm. and keep doing that with them every class until they're able to not chant it on their own necessarily but that you they start vibrating in a different frequency and that really really helps so for example i've just i've been doing teaching the sanyama online and i had Advertised it as like this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna do some samya- And I realized when the people went, joined the class that they really weren't ready. So I'm like, well, we're gonna, I was planning on doing this anyway. Let's just chant the whole chapter. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we were done chanting chapter one, they were all exhausted <laughs> and they were ready to be done. Right. And so we kept meeting, and, and this has really happened by accident, and we kept meeting and then maybe into the second six-week series, so we're just once a week for six weeks, Um, they were asking, well, what about this meditation that was part of this course? When are we going to try that? And then they were ready. And they were, yeah. And so every class still, we chant an entire chapter um, and they're vibrating at a different frequency. I'm certainly vibrating at a different frequency. And um, then we do it. And I go through... Um, the sutras, are just baby steps at a time. So one through uh, 15, we'll go through those and talk about them. Mm-hmm. And then I go to um, the Sanyama cha- chapter. So chapter three, and we just talk about those, you know, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi, the three together is one lead to primary insight and then right to the Bhutajaya. And then I, ta- I have a, an, a recording. And they practice the Bhutta Jaya from this recording, which is actually scripted from when Bias used to lead us through it. So it's his language, which I kind of like that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's still very much a part of this. And, you know, he really has revivified this practice. And, you know, so many... Yoga practitioners, I'm kind of going off track a little bit, but hey, that's days, okay. I
0: remember, we're just keeping it.
1: That's, that's uh, right. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah so many yoga practitioners end up going to Buddhist meditations. Yes, because the the real like the the Patanjali meditation just isn't accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that its time has come. Mm-hmm. You know? I wish Vyas had taught a little bit longer. You mm-hmm. know. Oh. All
0: right. Well, that's why you're here now.
1: Yeah, I guess that's why I'm here now. <laughs> <laughs> I had <Yeah>. no choice. <laughs>
0: yeah. and, and from the from the yoga sutras perspective of, for example, like asana and pranayama and so on, you're talking about chanting, which I've been doing a lot more research into like, the physiological effects of chanting or certain deep breathing exercises, how it affects like the vagus nerve or other aspects of the nervous system. And by doing those sorts of things, you see, in, in, in just a little background, Mr. Davis, did you ever meet Roy, Mr. Roy Davis?
1: No, I didn't.
0: Well, he was very, very straightforward, not a lot of uh, excess anything, just right to the point. And I always tried to emulate him because he was my teacher. But I've always been a musician. And so when it came to doing things like uh, chanting or, or, or kirtan, um, I would lead it as he would, like Om Namah Shivaya or Sri Ram Jairam, to get the meditation going. But the more I started studying how those kinds of things affect the body, it became clear that by chanting certain things or even what I love about uh, uh, Vyasa's um, Yoga Sutras recording, that kind of rhythmic pattern that that he says the sutras in it's almost like that has a particular effect on the body and pranayama which is one of the sutras i wanted to ask you about we might not get to it but holding the breath a certain way or breathing in a certain pattern breaks the 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 conditioning of the mind in a way so that you catch glimpses of clarity or or glimpses of 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 deeper awareness those sorts of things so that makes um,
1: sense because when you when you use pranayama to break what you just described um, you're taking it out of the autonomic nervous system and offering it up to the central nervous system with your using your mind. So it's you're really changing everything, the whole dynamic of what it means to breathe and what breathing does. It's Go ahead, yeah. sorry. you
0: just got no, to... no. It, it's fascinating stuff. It's fascinating stuff. And even uh, Ramana Maharshi, you know, he would recommend just contemplate who am I, or he would say it's really very simple. All you have to do is be still, <laughs> which is <laughs> which, which is true, which is true. But when when people couldn't grasp that, or they couldn't, or they couldn't quite just sit there and be still, he would say, you know, mantra chanting or certain forms of pranayama help you to access that to, to get a sense of it and until you can move your way into it. So what you're describing in regards to, you know, chanting the whole chapter or, or chanting aspects of um, the yoga sutras, it makes sense that that creates the opening or the, the field, I guess, not quite the right word, but the the, the space for that subtler aspect of ourselves to come through or be recognized. That's hard to, hard to describe. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And yeah, to connect and actually to connect with that part of ourselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that makes absolute sense.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned the idea of um, people going to Buddhist practices. Uh, And I was just having a conversation with uh, another Kriya Yoga teacher, and he was saying that um, a lot of individuals have gone to to Buddhist meditation, Buddhist practices, but he was he was thinking of it from a different angle. He was saying that uh, a lot of uh, yogic practitioners um, they have kind of a, a a fantastic idea about what what yoga is supposed to do, but but Buddhism tends to have a little more of a practical approach of that idea of attachment to life is suffering. So what do you do about it? Whereas a lot of pop culture yoga is more like. You can have the most beautiful, enjoyable, pleasurable life known to man where the the sutras, or I think it's the sutras side, the sutras of the Gita focuses on, you know, endure pleasure and pain while you seek knowledge. (laughs)
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) So so I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's really true that there. Yeah. And I think it's happening more and more just that we're talking about this, that people are connecting to the truer um, underlying philosophy of yoga, and that maybe it's early stages here in this country, especially with the boom like the so much yoga. I think maybe the early early teachers, like when Iyengar came here and all that, that there was that underlying piece, but it kind of got lost in the boom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and whoever else, Yogananda came here.
0: Yogananda, um, Vivekananda, you know, there's a few, yeah, of them that, right. that, you know, had that uh, came to, to, well, you know, and you also got to think about when they came, I mean, it was what the early 1900s and, <laughs> and, and, you know, a, a brown skin person walking around was probably not really <laughs> well received. So you couldn't just jump right into Sankhya philosophy or <laughs> the depth of the yoga sutras. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, um, well, before we conclude today, I'm just, we had discussed some things we want to talk about. Um, did we speak to what you wanted to share or is there more you would like to talk about this process or well, the that, idea of the
1: I really wanted to share about um, Sanyama and the yeah. third chapter. And I think the only other thing I would say about it is that um, not to worry about um, the cities that wh- the cities are merely a sign that you're on the right path they're not something to be attained right they it's and so um to approach a a sanyama practice with innocence like a child and just let it unfold as it's going to unfold and be enchanted by the experiences you have and um i don't even want to call them powers by the Um, just by the experiences that you have but keep moving don't don't you would never stop at that point where um, the minute you start to try to grasp something um, it it gets the subtlety is lost and the beauty Mm -hmm. is lost so and
0: and what you're describing the the sutras go through it seems to be like this step-by-step procedure of developing more of a sattvic state
1: Mm
0: -hmm, of awareness and a a lot of people uh then get to the part where it says and then you have to let go of satva too yeah so then they 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 would say things to me like well why do it in the first place if you have to let go of it so my thought was this is the way i tried to describe it then i want to hear your your how your perspective on it i I tried to tell them i said look it's like when uh you've got a, a child being raised by a family And that child's being raised and the child loves the parents. The parents love the child. So there is attachment there. It's like the attachment to the sattva. But that particular way of raising the child makes it so when the child turns 18 or 19, the child can leave and feel free and and say, yes, I love you. We we have a good relationship, but I'm not going to be bound to you by any kind of psychological weirdness. I'm going to be able to, to go off and do my thing. So, m- the way I approached or tried to share this idea of sattva was that developing sattva is like having that healthy relationship, being raised in a healthy relationship where you are strong enough to go out into the world so you can let go of where you came from. Um, so, how do you when do people bring that up to you at all? This idea of why why do we have to develop it if we're just going to let go of it?
1: Um, you know what? This is so funny because uh, I have a story, but okay. um, not because not it didn't come up for the same reason. I just told it on um, last night, actually. Or no, yeah, last night. Um, the story of Ramakrishna, mm. and it actually goes perfectly with your the, the way that you describe it where he was a great devotee of um, the goddess Kali in her mother form. And he would experience her as this amazing light. And, you know, he was definitely an enlightened, enlightened being, Mm -hmm. but he did not want to go beyond this experience of Kali of of his mother, (laughs) of this mother goddess. And so um, he resisted it until finally a sadhu uh, came wandering through and said, you know, you really need to move, Beyond this, you you know you're supposed to. It's part of your dharma. And um, he he refused. He didn't refuse. He's just like, no, I'm really content where I am. And so the uh, sadhu put a, a sharp rock into his third eye. You know, just like kind of poked him in the third eye and made him move beyond. Even though it was kind of like John the Baptist and Jesus or something. You know, yeah. like he just came and pushed him to that next level. Uh, but he was very attached, even in his. Um, and so it was the child being attached to the mother in that case. But um,
0: so yeah. even in that profound, even in that profoundness, that was something that needed to be m- moved on from.
1: Yeah. And to be honest with you, it's not something that I think about a lot. But now you have me really thinking about it. You know, it's like I think about it in the context of my meditation, not getting stuck on the subtle because there's some always something more subtle to go to. So why, you know, um, but uh, as far as like in life, um, even talking to my students about it in that way, I think um, I might contemplate doing that more because that's very mm-hmm. true. Yeah. It's very true. And it's, it, they should be prepared for that.
0: Right. Excellent. Well, it was so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for being here.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: And um, you are the director of the American Sanskrit Institute. And the website for people to learn more about this is um, www.americansanskrit.com. And then you also have a website, um, uh, sanskritshala.org. So S-A-N-S-K-R-I-T-S-H-A-L-A.org. Yeah. So I'd like to encourage people to, to go to that. And I will put it in the notes of the, the podcast so people can find it and click on it. Thank you. Um, So thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com
1: forward slash Kriya Yoga.